Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Several years ago, I I think it must have been about uh, 12, maybe 12 years ago, um, I, at one point I thought I was the healthiest I had ever been in my life. I was doing half marathons. I was doing this and that. Just one day, I just, just all of a sudden started feeling jittery and weak and nauseated. And it wasn't like just a, a virus that, you know, came for a few days, but I actually was out of town when it happened and I called my doctor and, uh, came, shortened that trip, came home early. And I remember over the weekend, just, I just, I just felt like a wet noodle and I knew something was wrong. I knew had to do something. So made the plan Monday morning. I, perhaps I should have gone to the emergency room. I was thinking about going to the emergency room, but I thought, well, I think I'll go to my doctor's office. I don't have an appointment. And usually, you know, when you call, it takes a day or two to get in, but I'm, I'm just going to go. So my wife, Tish, took me. Uh, we were going to be there, like, right away when the doctor opened. And I remember go- going in the doctor's office thinking, okay, I'm going to be the very first one there. And I get there, and, you know, everybody and their brother is already in the waiting room. And I am... Uh, well, she's sitting there, and I'm actually lying there in the waiting room. I didn't even really have the energy to sit up. And I, and we explained, I don't have an appointment, but I would like to see the doctor, if it's any way. He had not arrived yet. We beat the doctor there. And they said, well, we'll talk to him when, when he gets here to see if, if he'll see you. So I'm, I'm there, and... You know how you're in the waiting room and, you know, they open the door. The nurse comes out and calls somebody. Every time that door opened up, I had a little bit of hope like, oh, are they going to call my name? But I didn't know whether they were going to call my name or not. And then after a few minutes, they actually called my wife back. They called Tish back and they asked her to go back and explain what was going on to the doctor. She went back and explained what was going on with me to the doctor. And he looked at her and he said, I will work him in. I will work him in. And she came back and told me that. And then, as I still waited out there, every time that door opened up, I had a little bit of hope. But my hope was different. Because I had the word of somebody I trusted. He had said... He is going to see me. I didn't know which time it opened up that I was going to get to see him. But do you see the difference between the two kind of hope? There's a, there's a hope that I hope this happens. I don't know whether it really will or not. That's the way I was at first. And then there's a hope that, yes, I know it's going to happen. I'm just waiting for the right time. That second kind of hope is the kind of hope that Christians celebrate today with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the kind of hope that is talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to call your attention there. In the first century, there was this city called Corinth, and a man named the Apostle Paul 
uh, wrote to the believers in Christ, new believers in Christ at Corinth, and he talked about the hope of resurrection for this whole chapter. We're not going to look at the whole chapter, but we're going to hit some highlights as we focus our thoughts today. He wrote to them beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, in these verses, the writer Paul is not trying to prove that the resurrection happened. These Residents of Corinth in the first century knew that. They knew that he had risen. They knew it was true, but he's, he's stating the grounds from which he's arguing the point because after he left, some people came in and were making a claim that, well, there is no such thing as any resurrection. There, nobody rises from the dead. And so he's, he's building this case about why the, import, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is important. And today, on Resurrection Day, I want to try to answer two questions for us. First of all, how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? We weren't there. Some of them were probably there. And they knew people who had seen him. They knew witnesses. But now, a couple thousand years later... How do we know today that Jesus rose from the dead? And secondly, how does Jesus' resurrection affect us today? Is this just some relic from the past? Is this just something we think about once a year? Oh, it's Easter. Or does it have a bearing? Does it have an effect? So let's look at these two. And to answer the question, how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? I am building it on an acrostic that spells Easter. Uh, let me say this. First of all, there will be no special pleading today. I don't think when we try to talk about how we know Jesus rose from the dead, we have to say, well, you know, this is religious truth or something. So we, we don't really have to know it in the same way that we know other things because we just believe it in our hearts and it's real in our hearts or we can't subject it. And I, and I say there's an element of that that's, that is applicable, but we're not going to build the case on that. We're not going to use special pleading. I want, I, I want to challenge you today. Some of you may wonder about this, whether you're here in person or you're watching our live stream. Maybe you wonder, how can we really know that that happened? Or maybe you believe it happened, but you would like a little bit of help in explaining it to others. Today, what we're going to do for a few minutes, we're going to look at a really strong case for why we know it. And we're not going to special pleading. We're going to use the same criteria 
that you would use for anything else in life. How do you know it's true? Well, first of all, eyewitnesses. Are there any eyewitnesses? Did anybody see it? Did anybody see this happen? Well, in the case of Easter, in the case of what Paul is talking about here, he's named several eyewitnesses. And it's interesting that the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection were women. You say, why does that matter? Well, in the first century, if you lived in the first century and you wanted to have a court case and you were going to a Jewish court, only the testimony of men would be accepted. Women's testimonies would not be accepted in public. And here are writers, four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're explaining about Jesus rising from the dead. And so think about it. If you're them and you're trying to write something that's a fabrication, something that never really happened, and you're trying to make up a story for it, who are you going to make the witnesses? Are you going to make women the witnesses? Are you going to make men the witnesses? Well, you're going to make men the witnesses because that's what holds up, quote unquote, in Jewish court. Well, why did they, why did all these gospel writers write about Mary and these other women that found Jesus first? There's a simple reason. They're the ones that found Jesus' resurrection first. They went to the tomb. He wasn't there. And that's why it happened that way. They were eyewitnesses. And then there was Peter, the 11 disciples. There were two people on the road to Emmaus. There were more than 500 at one time. There was James. There was all the apostles. And there was Paul. Secondly, the accounts are consistent. Whenever there, I'm sure whenever there's, a, say, an automobile accident and the police officers arrive to gather information, uh, they're going to want to know, did any eyewitnesses see whether the red car or the green car is the one that went through the red light, and they're going to they're going to ask, is this account consistent with this account? There's internal consistency. Does somebody tell the, the officers one story one time and then they change it later? But there's also consistency among themselves. Does does this person's testimony match this person's testimony? And in the case of the Gospels, we have accounts that are consistent with each other. Superior manuscript evidence. That's very, very important because now we're 2,000 years later. And now we open our Bibles and we read about this. And the question is, how do we know that what the witnesses saw and what they wrote down is really what happened? And how do we know how it got passed down to us? So here's what's interesting about manuscripts. I want to put a chart up that shows you, that just compares the New Testament with other Greek writings. New Testament was written in Greek. Other Greek writings of the time. And I want you to think about the amount of time from the events happening to the time when we have the first manuscript that wrote about it. So those two middle columns, you take Caesar there with the, with the Gallic Wars, you know, lived around 100 to 44 B.C., the earliest copy is almost a thousand years later, 900 BC. And then Homer writing the Iliad and the Odyssey. Okay, again, 400 or so years before Christ, uh, was, was the time frame, or, or I'm sorry, 900 years before Christ. And the first manuscript is 2300 years later. 
And you can just follow that chart down. But when you get to the New Testament, the bottom line, these events happened in the first century from sometime around AD 40 to 100. And the earliest manuscript is just a few years later at AD 130. And then watch the last column. Watch how many copies of these manuscripts we have. 10, 643, 7, but thousands and thousands of copies of the New Testament. The point is this. If we want to look at the manuscripts, we want to compare what we have from the Bible as to all these other writings in Greek literature, the New Testament comes out with flying colors. Then there's T, the transformation of the disciples. Think with me about this. After these events that happened in Jerusalem, after Jesus Christ was crucified, publicly executed, those who were his followers, what did they do at first? <laughs> they hid. They ran away. They got in secret places. And now these men who were defeated, who thought, their hopes had been dashed. They were scared for their own lives, so much so that Peter, when Jesus was being tried or about arrested, uh, he denied three times that he even knew him, right? That's, that's what these guys were like. And now suddenly, a few years later, not, not a few years later, actually, a few days later, they change from scared, hopeless, discouraged, defeated people who march right back into Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus is crucified, and they say to everybody, uh, this Jesus that you guys crucified, he's alive. Why, why would they do that if it weren't true? I mean, why wouldn't they go to Rome or Athens or start somewhere else? But instead, they went right into Jerusalem, the very same city that had happened. And the reason why is because they had si- something had happened to them that transformed them. And what had happened to them is Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. That's why they were changed. And then the other E is the empty tomb. You know, these Jewish opponents of Jesus who, who like, you know, they gathered and they said, you know, we heard he was going to say things about coming back and everything. So let's, let's do something. Let's, let's get a huge stone And let's put it in front of the empty tomb. That stone probably weighed two tons. This is not something that, you know, you could just push off to the side by yourself. They used these levers to roll the stone. Two two ton stone. Now think about it. If, if If you don't believe in Jesus and you don't think Jesus is the Messiah and you think he's false... And you're living in that day and you're his opponent and somebody comes around and says, hey, Jesus is alive now. Think how they could have publicly humiliated the disciples by saying, uh, let's just go to the tomb. You say he's alive. Let's, let's call the Roman soldiers. Let's get the levers out. Let's roll that stone over and let's go in there and see the body. There was a reason they couldn't show them the body. That was because he was, he was alive. He rose from the dead. There is an empty tomb. And then finally, there are resurrection appearances. Between five and 600 people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And that can't be a hallucination. Psychologists tell us, uh, or psychiatrists tell us that a hallucination is an individual experience, not something that 500 people 
can have happen at the same time. The father of Judaism, Abraham, died about 1900 B.C. and not one claim has been made about his resurrection. The father of Buddhism, Buddha, died and the early accounts of his death say nothing about his resurrection. The father of Islam, Muhammad, died June 8, 632 A.D. at Medina where Mohammedans flocked to his tomb, but there's no resurrection there. But the father of Christianity, Jesus Christ, died, was buried, rose again, appeared to more than five or six hundred people, and he is alive today. So church, I would say, he is risen. That's how we know. That's how we know. And the second question is, how does that affect us today? The fact that Jesus is alive, the fact that he did rise from the grave, what does that mean for you and me? And I I think there are three things, and these are on your outline if you're following that along. There are three things, three, three ways it can affect us today, and here's the first one. Because it assures us of the forgiveness of our sins, confess and believe. The verses we read, Paul said, if, if, there's no, if there's no resurrection, there is no forgiveness. Look at verse 12. He picks up there. This is kind of the heart of the matter. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Okay, see how he's building? <laughs> if there's no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then what we're talking about is useless, so is your faith. <clears throat> In verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Because Jesus Christ was raised, it proved who he was. And now he offers salvation. He offers forgiveness of sins. All the wrong that all of us have done, he is willing to forgive. And the resurrection is showing us he is the one who can do that for us. Only God can forgive sins. But he rose from the dead. Our culture stresses having it all, right? But many people still find themselves a little bit empty. They find themselves struggling. They find themselves wondering, is there something more? They find themselves feeling like there's just a little something wrong, and what that something wrong is, is sin. In fact, one professor at Claremont University, Mary Pomplin, uh, professor of education was asked, why do you think you need to do something spiritually? She said, I have this black thing on my chest. And she was describing sin. She was describing the weight of guilt that comes to us when we know that we've done wrong. The Bible calls it sin. The Bible also says that sin was taken care of. Not not by becoming religious or turning over a new leaf or people trying their hardest, but it required a penalty. Every wrong deed requires a penalty. 
the penalty for sin was separation from God. And Jesus said, I will be separated from God. I will die on the cross and I will be separated and I will invite people to receive my forgiveness, to receive my love and be saved. And it's only, that's the only way it happens. It, it doesn't, it doesn't happen by trying harder. Some people think it happens by trying harder. I, I read about this story. This is not, this isn't from the Bible. It's kind of an apocryphal story, but it, it does illustrate a biblical principle. It turns out in this story, there was a man who was at heaven's gates. And the angel was asking, or he got there and the angel there said, why, why should I let you in? And he said to him, the angel said, all you need to do to get in is have a hundred points. And the guy said, well, how do I get points? He said, well, it just depends on all the good things you've done. Tell me what you've done and we'll add it up and we'll see if it comes up to a hundred. The guy said, okay, I need a hundred points to get into heaven. And the guy says, I was married for 50 years and I, I was always faithful to my wife. I never cheated on her one time, not even in my heart. And the angel says, good job. That's three points. The guy goes, three points. He said, okay. The angel says, is there anything else? He says, well, yeah, I was a member of my church and I was there every Sunday and I gave them of my time and I gave them of my money. And the angel says, good job. That's worth a point. The guy's getting a little bit nervous now. His heart's beating a little bit faster. And he says, oh, I know what I did. I, I built a homeless shelter in my city. And, and every year at the holidays, we fed hundreds and hundreds of homeless people. And the angel says, all right, we'll count that for two points. And the guy goes, man, at this rate, I'm only going to get in by the grace of God. And the angel says, come on in. <laughs> That's when we're saved. That's when we're made right with God. That's when we're admitted into heaven, when we stop trying to add up all of our points because we can't do enough good things to earn our way into heaven. And we go, you know what? It's only because of God. It's only because of Jesus. It's only because he died on the cross and I'm, I'm going to depend on him. And I would say to you today, if you're listening to this message, this, this is the message of the gospel. For you, It assures you, the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus assures you that your sins can be forgiven. Your, your, your response is to confess and believe. Say, yes, I confess he was Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. I want to be saved. Well, second, because it inspires hope for our future... Praise God. The second response today for the resurrection is for people who need hope. It's for people who, who have situations in life that aren't ideal. And the resurrection definitely inspires hope. Paul says in verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. 
For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So here's the ultimate hope that we need. All of us want to live a good, healthy, long life, right? We want to have things in place. But every one of us knows that at some point this earthly life is going to end. And then the question is, what's your hope then? Is that all there is? Is it just a few years on this earthly life? And even 80, 90, 100 years is a very few years compared to the whole span of eternity. Paul says, look, there's, there's a first fruits. In the Old Testament, when they harvest their grain, they would come and they would collect a, a, an early part of the harvest, a first leaf And it would be called the first fruits. And what it was when they collected that one, the whole harvest hadn't come in yet. But that one, the first fruits, was the guarantee that more was coming. It's kind of like what you do when you make a down payment on something, like a down payment on a house. You guarantee by that down payment that there's more coming. Well, Jesus' resurrection is like a down payment. It's like the first fruits. He is the one who rose from the dead first. And now because of that, everybody else who believes in him, who puts their faith in him, or as this verse calls it, who belong to him, they too are going to be raised. And this gives us hope. This gives us hope. There there are all kinds of situations in life that are tough. Some of you have people... That you have known, that you have loved, maybe your family members, maybe a mother, a father, an aunt, an uncle, a child, someone who has passed away. They were a believer in Jesus Christ and they're gone. And the question is, do we have any hope of seeing them again? Is it kind of pie in the sky? Is it just something we say at uh, memorial services or is there any reality to it? Well, Jesus Christ is the reality. He is the first fruits of those that slept. He gives us this hope. Most of us don't think about death very often until someone we know gets very ill or passes away. But listen to the celebration that is in Paul's voice as he explains and as he builds in the chapter. He says in verse 24, the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father After he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And he celebrates at the end of the chapter. He's speaking of Jesus there. He celebrates Jesus' victory at the end of the chapter. And he says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of sin, or the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has a sting to it, but Jesus has overcome. And because he has overcome, we have hope that we too will overcome. A little boy and his dad were driving down the road, they had the windows open, and a bumblebee flies in into the car. The boy was really, really incredibly nervous. I would have been really, really incredibly nervous. But he was really scared because he was allergic to it. And the dad 
somehow reached out and grabbed the bumblebee in his hands and squeezed it. And then he released it. The bumblebee was still in the car. It still had not flown out, but the boy was still nervous. And the dad said, there's nothing to be nervous about. Look, look at my hands. And the stinger of the bee was in his hand. He had taken the sting out of it so that now there was no danger to the boy. And that's what Jesus did. When he died, he was taking the sting of death for you and me. And he was buried and he rose again. So here's the, the way to respond. First of all, confess and believe because the resurrection shows forgiveness of sin. Secondly, it gives us hope for the future. So praise God for that today. And then finally, because it creates meaning and purpose in life, work for God fully. Work for God fully. Verse 58 is the last verse in this chapter. And after Paul says all of this about the resurrection, he says, therefore, in light of everything I've said, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Could there be anybody here today who knows Jesus Christ personally? You are his follower. You believe in him. But maybe you've gotten cold or distracted. Maybe you're not actively involved in serving him and helping his people and help others, helping others become his people. If if, if that's where you find yourself today, I hope that the resurrection will not only give you hope and not only encourage you about what an incredible victory he won, but it will give you challenge. I can work for the Lord. I should be working for the Lord. That labor in the Lord is not in vain. It never will go away. What are you spending your time and energy on today that's going to last a hundred years from now. Think about what our lives, what we're involved with in our lives. And I think it's a great question. A hundred years from now is what I'm doing going to matter. Well, if it's work for the Lord, it matters. It's not in vain. And when I say work for the Lord, I'm not talking about just what pastors and missionaries and church staff members do. It can bring new meaning to ordinary life. It's the mom who invests in her children, who trains them not only with life skills, but godly biblical qualities. It's the student who lives the Christian life when others around her are not. It's the business person who conducts their job, and their career with full integrity. It's the grandparent who prays for grandchildren to follow God. It's the worker who gives generously of what God blesses them with financially to support God's work. It's the Christian who volunteers to serve those in need. 
in and through the church ministry and in the community as well. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. We have great hope today. Followers of Christ, we have great hope today. He's alive and he gives us the chance to join in with what he was doing, why he came to begin with. And that labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here's God's word for us this morning. What is the resurrection? The resurrection of Christ was a public victory over death. I mean, he's, everybody saw it. It was a public victory over death, which gives us a powerful hope for life. The resurrection of Christ was a, a public victory over death, which gives us a powerful hope for life. And it's, it's available today. It's available. And that's what, that's the invitation I give to you today. A lot of times I'll, I'll close messages with uh, giving you uh, a story uh, about someone. But rather than my telling it today, I'm going to invite someone up so he can tell you his story in his words. So uh, Francois Payen is one of our harvesters, and uh, he's going to share briefly uh, how he met Christ and what Christ has, means to him and has done for him. Hello, everyone. Um, for me, uh, when I first came to this country, um, my uncle, I have an uncle who, I mean, he's the one who applied for us to come. We waited about 15 years before we could come. And one thing that he did, he requested that we all go to church with him every every Sunday. Um, either I wanted it to go or not, that's what we did. We have to go to church. And at first, it was very um, difficult, and I was a little bit rebellious in the beginning, because why do I need to go and asking a lot of questions? But going to that church allowed me to listen to the message of the gospel being preached. And in Sunday school, I had a lot of questions, but there is a good um, teacher who answers a lot of my questions. And from there, I... I was, I get to a point where I knew that God was will, and I knew that God was, Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, but it did not mean much to me at that point. It was just, okay, that's what it is, that's what is said, and I know it happened, but it did not really have any impact on my life. And I started talking and praying to God, and I said, I see all of those people singing on Sunday, and they are preaching. I know it is will, but it, it is not will to me. And I started praying to God, and it took a few, um, a few months, and I, I still keep on going to church singing, but it did not mean much. And at times, I would stop singing. It's, there is no difference to me. But over time, I saw God... Um, started to change my life. The desires that I used to have in the past, they started changing. And I see me, it's kind of a complete 180 from what I used to like to do and to what I started doing right now. And at the time, my English was worse than it is now. But I, it, there's a desire in me to talk to other people about what God has done. 
And um, after a few months, some of my siblings as well become Christians, and um, they get baptized. And being baptized was something that was a little bit, um, it was kind of public. At the time, I could say to my friends, I'm a Christian, but when they say, okay, do you want to get baptized? It was really, to me, I didn't get baptized to be saved, but it was a public way of um, kind of expressing that. And the gospel to me at that time, I saw God really changing, defining what it means to me. And I knew at the time before um, I was saved, if I had died, I would not have been in heaven with God. And that would have been a separation. And I thank God that the desire that he put in my heart is really coming really from him. And that the life that I have now, it's really because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And there is no, um, there is no fear in me telling people about it. I may not be able to explain everything, but I know it is true in my life. And it is, it has changed me and it has changed everything about me. And it is a great thing. And if God can save me, I can tell you he can save anyone in this room. Um, thank you. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.